All right, good evening, everybody. How are we doing? Awesome. Hey, uh, one more quick announcement. Uh, Lord gave me an idea a few months ago that I thought was a good idea. Um, I pay attention to uh, the podcast, the Riverhouse podcast, and you know we have people that listen from all over the country, um, but particularly to the messages that really uh, kind of blow up, you know, because uh, I asked the Lord why, and that's kind of how I pay attention to what's really resonating with the church. And we had a couple messages last year that came from uh, people that are um, full-time in the marketplace and uh, speaking particularly on how to bring the kingdom uh, into the marketplace context, and those messages just blew up on the podcast. And so out of that, I just um, I felt the Lord speaking to me that uh, a lot of you are hungering for what it looks like to navigate you know, the marketplace in a meaningful way and bring the kingdom. And so uh, what we're going to do um, is we're going to have what uh, I'm dubbing a Marketplace Sunday. And I've asked three uh, Marketplace leaders within Riverhouse community to actually preach on January the 27th. So that is two Sundays from tonight. Uh, and there will be a different, uh, a different speaker in each service. And I'm really, really excited about this. And I think that uh, it's going to be equipping in a totally different way. You know, because I'm a pastor and I think I have things to offer to you from my perspective, but I also think that there's things that, uh, that those uh, that will be ministering have to offer as well. And so uh, you can come to multiple services. All three will be streamed. All three will be on the podcast. And I'm really excited for what the Lord's going to do for this. So mark your calendars, January 27th, and come expecting to be blessed. Amen. Amen. Who is excited for that? Yeah. Me too. All right, well, I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, jump into tonight's message. Uh, so just uh, bow your heads if you want. I guess you don't have to, uh, but just pray with me. Lord, I thank you that tonight, God, uh, you're here, and I just feel your presence already in this place. God, I sense your intentionality, God. You're just desiring to do a good work yet again. God, you continue to outdo yourself from glory to glory. And so we ask for more glory, God. We ask that you'll do more than what we have yet seen at this point in our life and in our walk with you, despite how long or how great it has been. Lord, we want more of you, and we ask that you reveal your son in this house tonight. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, who was here three weeks ago, uh, which was anybody, right? It was a little bit of a different night, and I know that, uh, you know, it was a struggle for some of you, and I'm going to address that, um, but I think God is desiring for us to come into a deeper place of union with Him, and been opening this concept that God is not asking for the majority of our time, He's asking for the priority of our time, which is a life of prayer, but within prayer itself, there's a lot of misnomers that we just bring into it. These concepts that we think and, and I guess that, the, that we actually practice that don't work very well. And one of the big things I see in prayer is that it's, I think it's just the Western bent that we have in, in, in sense of doing is that we come with this productivity mindset to prayer. And so we're like, hey, I see the promises of prayer. Jesus says, you pray anything in my name, it will be accomplished. So we come to prayer and we're too quick to go out to try to get the power of prayer to work through us to change our circumstances, to change our world, to change the places where we want to see the kingdom. Right? And the reality with prayer and what we started with, what I opened up three weeks ago is that the, that the first point in prayer is not to intercede. It's not to minister horizontally out to the world. It's actually to minister to the Lord. It's, it's vertical ministry precedes horizontal ministry, right? So I'm not coming to try to pray and pray and pray and change things until I've actually come to just know him, right? The priority of prayer is intimacy, right? And I think a lot of times we fail to recognize that prayer is an eternal thing, right? It's divine communication. We're going to pray when we get to heaven, but I think a lot of Christians are going to get to heaven, and they're not going to know what to do. So be like, well, there's, there's no more marriages to pray for. Right? There's, there's no more orphans that need food. There's no more sicknesses. There's, what, what do we do now? Right? Does that make sense? Right? We, we have to have eternal perspective even in the way we pray. Right? We're going to get to know the goodness of God for all eternity. Right? And that starts on earth. Right? So... The priority in prayer is getting to know God. It's actually coming into union with God, right? And we have these, these, these misconceptions. It's like, you know, if you pray anything in my name, it will be accomplished. And I've heard people be like, I don't know what I really think of that verse. I know it sounds straightforward, but I don't know what it really means. Because I tried it, didn't work, right? Anybody been there? Anybody been there? Come on. 
I mean, I've been there. Like, dang, I really wanted that situation to work. I remember, like, in high school, you know, that one that gets away. I was like, Lord, I prayed in, <laughs> I prayed in your name, man. <laughs> All right, so I'm talking to the right people, okay? We... We focused on that verse, the intercede troubles, because we focused so much on, I prayed, I prayed, I interceded, and we didn't really sit and ponder what it means to be in his name, right? In his nature, in his essence, interwoven with him, one with him, so deeply connected to the heart of God that I can't pray a prayer he's not praying because we're one, Right, I've heard, uh, I think it's Bill Johnson says, God so wants to sanctify and renew your mind that he can make your will happen. Get it? That's like a fancy way of saying it. it's still his will, but you know what I mean? Okay, so in his name, right, to know him, in him, that's the priority of prayer. That's where we start, right? And, and prayer is much more effective. We'll start to see transformation through our prayers when we just learn to be in him to be one with him, to be connected with him, right? Which is him giving his love to us, which is what we did three weeks ago, but it's also us offering our love to him. And there is a union that is formed. We minister unto him. He is desiring intimacy with you, right? He doesn't see you as just another agent. I just, hey, I want to use you to accomplish these things. Yeah, he does, but that is not the priority. He wants to know you. When Jesus was, was choosing the 12, it said he chose them, called them apostles, that they would be with him, and then he would send them out to preach, right? Jesus does not want to use you. He doesn't just want some kind of business relationship with you in prayer. Hey, I want to change the world. Just come and let me teach you how to pray so you can go do these things. He wants to be with you, right? And we're so good at trying to get to the doing, the doing, the doing, the interceding, the ministering, the horizontal, that we don't, we don't realize the depth that needs to be cultivated vertically between you and God alone, all right? So I had many people come up to me the other night after that and say, hey, each service, say, hey, that was hard for me. I, I totally get it. It's, it's hard sometimes, right? Blocks in prayer. I have a hard time connecting. And I'm sure some of you have tried to do that on your own since and probably experienced blocks of your own. Like, yeah, just... <laughs> Wasn't quite as easy. Wasn't quite as good. I just couldn't quite connect with God, right? And the thing that I find happens with Christians a lot is we start experiencing a block in prayer. Then we try to form a theology around it. And we start saying, you know, I'm just in a dry season. I'm in a wilderness, right? That's not theologically correct, right? Because Hosea 2 says in the wilderness, he speaks kindly to you. It's actually a place of even increased presence. It's just everything else sucks, Right? But, but we form theologies that try to make our prayer block sound holy. When the reality is, I can honestly attest to you, for the last 11 years, I haven't had a dry season in prayer. I've had hard seasons. I've had seasons with a lot of pain. I've had seasons where I have had to fight for connection. But he is always present. He is God with you forever. And he's only present. This is the, trick or the, the kicker, though. He's present with your authentic self. Right? So the problem is in prayer, if I'm not being able to connect with God, it's not that God's not present. It's not that he, it's like, I'm not having to work hard. Where are you? Let me figure out. He lives inside you, right? but he's only present with your authentic self. So I would say your prayer block has to do with inauthenticity, not with being in a dry season or being in a wilderness. He's actually inviting you. He's actually removing his felt presence because he's trying to create movement within you so that you'll journey to a place that you haven't been before. He's trying to open up a new realm of vulnerability. He's trying to draw you into a deeper depth of authenticity so that you can know him in the way he desires you to know him. Right? But because we don't know what to do with that, because we haven't as a culture really talked much about this inner world and what to do with pain and how to navigate suffering and what to do with disappointment, right? We just kind of come to church and look dignified and put together and pray holy prayers, right? We have this whole realm that is waiting to be untapped where God dwells in man, right? So we need to know him, amen? That's the intro. You ready to go? All right, so what I'm going to talk tonight is the role of pain in prayer, Say, ooh, that wasn't what I wanted to hear. It's okay, ooh. The role of pain in prayer. It's important that we have a place for pain. It's important we know what to do with pain. And pain is something that human beings universally experience 
and almost universally don't talk about. Loneliness, isolation, emptiness, depression, whatever it is, pain is real. Right? We live in a painful world. And so we all are dealing with pain. We have to know what to do with it. And if we, if we can see and contextualize this topic, I believe it's going to open up a world between you and Jesus that you can explore together. Does that sound good? All right, so Karl Marx, anybody know who he is? Probably not who you thought I was going to be quoting on a sermon on prayer. All right, he's the father of communism, very brilliant mind. Raised in a nominal Christian family, his father was a Jewish man converted to Lutheran, uh, the Lutheran denomination, because it, it brought him uh, financial benefits, and uh, didn't have a good taste in his mouth of what he experienced in Christianity and, and, and in all forms of religion. And he's quoted as saying this, religion, religion, religion. Religion is the opiate of the people. All right, and oftentimes we hear statements like this as Christians, and we just want to toss a grenade and blow it up and say, of course that's not true, idiot. <laughs> right, but I think that oftentimes you need to understand why a fence was put up before you take it down. Right, and you need to understand why a person said a statement before you just blow it up and say that's not true. Right, so I want to unpack what he's describing when he says religion is the opiate of the people, because I think his claim is valid in a lot of ways. I don't think he understood Christianity, but what he saw, I think, is true in a lot of ways. And this is what I mean. So religion, what is religion? Religion is a set of, you know, it's a prescribed set of principles, behaviors, moral, moral codes that basically tell you how to earn God's favor. Right? And, and all religions have a different God, and some religions have no God, but the point is not necessarily what the God is. It's just the favor is peace, joy, purpose, right? It's behaving, right? So religion is a prescribed set of principles, ideas, thoughts, behaviors, morality, that if you do them, you can earn favor. You can earn joy, peace, purpose, blessing in your life, right? This is not what Christianity is. This is what sometimes people make Christianity to be. It is not what Christianity is, but it is what religion fundamentally exist of. It's a set of code. You follow the code, you get favor, right? And Karl Marx is saying this type of thinking, this system is opiate for the people. In other words, this system offers human beings this sense of feeling in control of their lives, and they use that to create a paradigm that numbs them from the reality of a cold and broken world. Religion's the opiate of the people, I've had a couple examples uh, of this in my own life that I can look at, you know, and I, I remember uh, uh, of different religions, I guess, I've toyed with, and uh, when, you know, my family went through our broken season, and I also went through some pretty just deep personal rejection, uh, I turned at one point to exercise and food and had this very strict and restrictive diet and uh, workout regimen that I basically was using to create a form of control in the midst of a lot of chaos and, you know, thankfully, I had people in my life that brought me some feedback that kept me from really going too deep into it. But I recognized this whole ecosystem I'm creating is actually feeding me something. And I had some type of mentality. If I change the way I look and yada, 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 then I won't have to experience rejection. It was, you know, it was this kind of this broken system, right? But it offered me control. And that control was comforting in a very chaotic time. So that makes sense. All right, so that's just a little, little example in my life, right? Here's another uh, way that I think you guys can all resonate with where I see uh, the church using uh, a form of scripture or at least theology to be opiate. And uh, the statement, God is in control, in my opinion, is one of the most misused and abused statements that I hear within the body of Christ, right? And I see this statement used in a couple of different ways. And before I get into that, I just want to make the statement that I believe God is in charge. I believe God has all the power. I believe God has all the authority, right? But to say that God is in control, I think is kind of funny because we're in a world that is wildly out of control, right? And, and God is, is beautiful. He's powerful, right? But he, I, I do not believe that he's in control. I believe the reason we're praying uh, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's because we want to see his dominion come to earth so that there is a sense of control where peace is governing the world, right? That's when you know God's in control, amen? Right? But why do we say this statement? 
Right? We say the statement, I've seen it in a couple different ways, and in both ways are numbing. Right? The first is I see people that they've made really, really bad decisions that were very openly contrary to the will of God, and then say statement like, you know, I messed up, but it's okay. God's in control. And I've confronted people before and said, no, that's actually jacked up theology. It's like you're just basically using that statement to remove responsibility from your behavior and say, oh, it doesn't really matter. God's in control. That's opiate. Right? That's a misuse of Romans when it says he'll turn all things to the good of those who love God. Not just, hey, do whatever you want and God's in control. Same outcome's going to happen. Uh, no, it must not have been God's will. No, no, no. You chose contrary to his will. And there's a lot of destruction that came from that. Right? But we'll offer that statement. Opiate. Right? The other way I see this statement misused is that... Uh, we will engage with crisis, hardship, uh, you know, scary situations, disease, cancer, death, whatever it is, and we'll kind of flippantly say, you know, it's okay though. God's in control. Right? No, that's not a statement that I would make in the face of a scary situation. Right? We're actually using that to remove ourselves from having to engage with the time where, where we don't have a scary situation. And we're creating an intellectual paradigm where, where we don't have to deal with that vulnerability. It, can, it makes it feel a lot more safe. No, 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 God's in control. He's got it. Right? And you might be thinking right now, well, it sounds like you're trying to make God smaller in my eyes right now. No, I'm not. I'm actually trying to show you that if you engage in the brokenness, you engage in the vulnerability, you find that God's actually a lot more powerful than a God who's in control is a lot less powerful than a God of love. Because God has all the power. He has all the authority. He could control humanity in one moment. He could create order like this if he used control and manipulation because he is all-powerful. Right? But when you look at the cross of Jesus, you don't see a God who's in control. You see a God who bled and gave his life with no guarantee that anyone would ever choose him. But he gave himself completely because he believes in the power of love, that love never fails. And I'm going to love humanity back to wholeness. I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to love you in such a way that it's going to heal even in the midst of the mess and the brokenness and the depravity of all this sin and this mess of life. You see what I'm saying? That, that's a more powerful God than a God who's just in control. He's a God of love. Right? And the cross is messy. The cross is broken. The cross is not a picture of control. It's a picture of chaos. But God gets into that chaos, and he turns it into this instrument, this place of beauty, and has sparked a movement that's healing the world one person at a time. Right? He's in charge. He's all-powerful. He is enormous, but he is love, and love demands freedom. It demands it. Even in Eden, right, there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it does not say that the devil planted it there. God put it there because for Eden to be a perfect place, there had to be choice. And he loved us enough to give us choice. And he will not take that choice away. That's a, that, that's a big God. It's a vulnerable God. That's the God that won my heart, not one that controlled me. When we use religious paradigms to shield us from the pain of life, we are consenting to Karl Marx's statement, and we're missing the very heart of Christianity. Right, Christianity is not a religion. It's an invitation to know the God who bled. It's not opiate. It is a fountain of healing. Right, but the only way that that healing actually begins to permeate and take root and actually manifest in our lives is we have to learn to let God into our pain. And this can be very difficult because a lot of Christians have a theology that has no place for pain. A lot of people in the church have actually created a, a, an intellectual, psychological, theological paradigm that has no place and no value for pain. Right, so you start getting 
you know, cultures and individuals, whatever it is, but we, we start losing the tension of the paradox of Christianity. And we start preaching messages of God's abundance, but we never talk about poverty. Let's talk about healing without brokenness. We talk about purity without ever talking about facing our shame. We talk about joy without mourning. We talk about mercy without humility, right? We, we lose it. We just start focusing on all the benefits, on all the, the good things, the resurrection things. And these things are good. They're true. They're real. We want all of them, right? But they're hailed in tension to, to the reality of the pain and the suffering of this life, right? And when we lose this tension, we're actually removing the cross from the gospel, And that's the central axis of this whole thing. It's the cross of Jesus Christ, the God who bled. Right? True love is not afraid to bleed. And in this life, to love is to suffer. You cannot look at the life of Jesus and find any other conclusion. He's the God who bled. And he says, follow me. And in fact, if you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. You can't be my disciple because I am love. And love in this life will mean suffering. Because the world is full of pain. It's full of brokenness. Right? Susanna didn't even know what I was preaching on tonight. This is what she posted. I don't know if you guys saw it. I was going to read it. She posted this on social media this afternoon. To be a Christian is to be affected. You might even say contaminated by the mess of humanity. That surely is one of the most extraordinary mysteries of being Christian. We're in the middle of two things that seem quite, quite contradictory. In the middle of the heart of God, the ecstatic joy of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in the middle of a world of threat, suffering, sin, and pain. And because Jesus has taken his stand right in the middle of those two realities... That is where we take ours. As he says, where I am, there my servant will be also. You know, and Paul embodies this. In Ephesians 1, he talks about, you know, uh, God works according to the good pleasure of his will. Say it, good pleasure, say it. Doesn't this sound, doesn't this make you feel good saying it? Like, who wants to live in the good pleasure of God's will for your life? That's how Paul describes the will of God for his life. And then in Corinthians, he says, I've been beaten, stoned, nearly killed, left, shipwrecked, abandoned, persecuted, rejected, denied, beaten, whipped, suffering. And not just these external things, then the internal things, the weight of burden he carried for the church. How do you get both of those? How is that the good pleasure? Right? It's paradox. But the reality is when we start veering towards all the benefits of the cross, when we start camping and fixating and focusing and we only have space for the good things, the resurrection things, our prayer lives will suffer. Right? Because prayer is about knowing the God who bled. Knowing the God that was the most courageously vulnerable person that ever walked the earth, Jesus Christ. The man who never closed off. The man who knew he was going to be betrayed and washed the man's feet. Right, the, the, he, he just he held nothing back. He's vulnerable and authentic to the core, all the way to the cross. And he says, follow me. And prayer is getting to know him. Right, so the problem is, if I only have space for the good things, then when I come to pray, I actually have created a superficial paradigm that I don't know how to go deeper because the deeper is going to require me getting in contact with something that I'm scared of and have no idea to do with, which is pain. Suffering, hardship, the disappointment, the questions, the yearnings. Like we act sometimes like the church. I have people come to me with these questions and they all kind of like, I'm, I'm, I'm mad at God. And I'm like, well, you probably should be with what you just walked through. You got some deep questions. God's not afraid of that. God's not afraid of your anger. God's not afraid of your questions. God's not afraid of your disappointment. God's not afraid of your emotion. God's not afraid of your pain. He wants you to be real with him. But we don't talk. We don't have space for this. And God forbid in the church. You know, they can lament in the scripture, but not on Sundays. Sunday's about being happy. Sunday's about getting inspired. Son, I want to leave church feeling happy and good. Amen. 
So no wonder when we get to the prayer closet, we don't know what to do. I don't have space. I don't have a grid. Right, but God is authentic, is, is present with our authentic self. He's not present sometimes in these superficial good prayers because that's not where we actually are. But where are we actually? That takes some work to figure out sometimes. We can't be afraid of pain. Because in this life, to love is to suffer. And we're on a journey of becoming love. And I want to make clear that I am not advocating in any way a theology that exalts pain. I'm advocating an unwavering vulnerability that allows space for it. Yeah. And I'm advocating that when that pain does come, which it will, you have the courage to be authentic and engage with it. That's the world we live in. It's vulnerability, authenticity. Right? Christians are not people who use scripture. Christians are the courageous who follow Jesus with an open heart, follow the crucified God into the pain and the brokenness of this life, bringing resurrection. Right? That's where resurrection comes, in the brokenness of life. So when we try to bypass the prayers of pain and get real with that and just go to the good stuff and the resurrection and the healing and the miracles and all this stuff, like we, we are, we're not being authentic. Right? And so we start having blocks. I don't, I don't feel God. I don't know what's going on. This just doesn't seem like this was working. Yeah, it's because there's a deeper place that he's trying to draw us to. All right, Philippians 3, it says, to know him in the fellowship of his suffering and in the power of his resurrection. It's both, right? Because we are fixated right in the paradox. We're in the heart of God, which is both an intensely joyful and, and sorrowful place. Because he loves. He has an open heart. There's a, a plot within the Song of Solomon account that I want to, highlight tonight because I think it gives language to what I'm trying to talk about and um, you don't need to follow you can honestly go and read this on your own but I'm just going to take you through a number of verses that kind of span uh, the width of this narrative and uh, really I think articulate the heart of Jesus and what he's trying to draw his church his bride to All right in Song of Songs is this uh, poetic language uh, describing a romance between the King Solomon and this commoner, the Shulamite bride. And uh, Solomon, uh, who is representative of Jesus, right, pursuing the church. So just follow me here. And, and we are all the Shulamite, this commoner, this shepherd girl that are, is being pursued by a king. And uh, Jesus is very clearly throughout this, you just see that this bridegroom has the intent that he's trying to get the bride to come up on the mountain with him. All right, so this is kind of the subplot I want to show is, is the intent of the bridegroom to get the bride to climb the mountain with him. All right, in, in chapter 2, uh, verse 8, the bride is speaking. says, listen, my beloved, behold, he's coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. He's like a gazelle, right? And so she sees him leaping on the mountains, and he descends and person in the broken, this commoner, this shepherd girl, this Shulamite, right? This person in the brokenness. He comes from the heights down into the brokenness, begins to pursue. And Jesus uh, speaks these words, which I believe is an invitation that he offers to all of us tonight. And, and he speaks this, and this just, it's this invitation to come up the mountain with him. He says, oh my dove, this is verse 14 in chapter two. Oh my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. Right? So this language is a direct reference to Moses on the mountain with God, who God in the cleft of the rock revealed his glory to Moses. Right? So in this passage, the bridegroom's coming and saying, hey, come up to the mountain, ascend the mountain, dare to approach my holiness and there in the cleft of the rock, 
I want you to express yourself to me because your voice is sweet to me. You are attracted to me. I, I want to reveal my love to you. I want to show my glory to you. I want to manifest, right? Like Moses' encounter. Moses was the man in Israel. This was the story of Israel where God bestowed himself and revealed who he was to Israel. It was on the mountain with Moses. And now in this passage, the bridegroom saying, come, come up the mountain. Come to that place and I want to show you my glory right what are we talking about tonight prayer to know him to know him to know him he's saying I'm gonna come down and, and pursue you but my desire is that you will come out of the brokenness come out of the valley come out of any place that he finds us right he finds us right where we're at he doesn't wait for we get our act together to then show us he says hey I'm right here but I'm trying I want you to come up here with me Right, that's the invitation. He wants all of us there. And two verses later, this is what the Shunammite replies. Until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away, the morning, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle. Go up the mountain alone. She rejects him. Why? Why, why would she say no to seeing the glory of God on the mountain? Right? Jesus is gracious. He, he descends, and we start seeing this tension of separation. And this theme of separation starts uh, to be evident in the next couple chapters. And in chapter 4, uh, verse 6, Jesus uh, gives us, we get more insight into this mountain that he goes to. And he says, until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh. All right, myrrh was a, uh, a symbol of fragrant suffering. Right? It, 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 uh, they got it in Israel. They got it on a tree. It would weep down a tree. It looked like the tree was crying. Right? And so myrrh had this association to suffering, right? to suffering love. And Jesus, right at his birth, what the wise men bring, one of the gifts is myrrh, which spoke to and prophesied of the death that he would die, this fragrant offering of love. Right? And so... This mountain that Jesus is climbing, it's actually, it's the cross. Saying, I will go my way to the mountain of suffering love. And so we can see there, this is why the Shumite wasn't ready to follow. Her rejection was, no, no, I, I, like, I like our relationship here. I like when you just come and pursue me, meet me where we're at. You see this, you know, they got a fling going. First couple chapters, like, this is great. But Jesus is like, there's more. There's more I want to show you. Climb the mountain. Climb the mountain. Embrace the cross. Climb the mountain of myrrh with me. No, I'm not. I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready for that. And you see this torment of separation. It goes, these next chapters, and the bride's not mature enough. The church isn't mature enough to follow the king up the mountain to really walk that hill, Golgotha, to carry the cross. Even though we know that's where intimacy is, he makes it very clear. I want you very clear. I want your heart very clear. I went to the cross so I could have you, all of you, and so many still. No, I'm, I'm good with it here. But I'm not ready to climb that mountain of suffering love. I'm not ready for the disturbance of the cross. I'm not ready to pay the price. I'm not ready to let go of these things. I'm, I can't. I'm afraid. I'm scared. I have shame. I'm unworthy. All these things. Right? Jesus doesn't say, fine, peace out. He keeps descending. But there's always this knowledge. There's something more. There's something more. I'm still waiting for you to meet me on that mountain in that secret place, in that steep path where I can show you my glory. Right, and this narrative continues until chapter 5. And we see the bride uh, has a moment where she is given an opportunity to decide yet again, am I ready to ascend? Am I ready to say yes? And in verse 6 of chapter 5, she describes this crisis I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and had gone. My heart went out to him as he spoke. 
I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer me. Sounds like a block. Where are you? Where are you? Why have you left me? Why? Why is this so uncomfortable? She begins to go out into the city. She begins to try to search. She, she's searching to find. Where'd you go? And it gets worse. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the wall came and took away my shawl. Suffering. Disappointment. Wounds. Hardship. Pain. Difficulty. The things we experience in life. But this is her moment. She then gets taunted. What kind of beloved is your beloved? You know, sometimes people can be the voice of the accuser. What kind of beloved would do that to you? You poor thing. You really love him? You really want him? What, what kind of beloved? What kind, what kind of person would abandon you when you needed him? What kind of person would let you go through that? Why, why? Anybody been there? This is her moment. And I believe that verse 10, her response to this question, it was her saying yes. In my pain, in my exposing, in my humility, in, in, in all my questioning, all the unknown, she says yes to the mountain she begins to admire. My beloved's dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000, and it goes on and on and on, and then she ends and says, and he is wholly desirable to me. Even in my pain, even if it means all of this, I choose you. What does this mean for us? Right, this is romantic, this is poetic, it's real. But I have found that when I'm in the testings of my own place, when I'm in pain of my own, my uh, first response is I don't just start having real poetic language to admire Jesus. Oh, Lord, your teeth is like carved ivory. <laughs> your teeth are like newly shorn ewes. You know, like that's not really my processing. Uh, it's usually through a lot of four-letter words and emotion and mess and screaming and stomping and whatever, right? I'm, it's real, it's raw, it's ugly, it's messy, but it's true, right? It's authentic. That's usually my process before I can get to anything that sounds much like admiration. And for that reason, I don't want to just close at Song of Songs. I actually want to go to Lamentations because uh, Jeremiah is in the same place, right? And Jeremiah, uh, as the Shulamite, uh, we see in Lamentations 3, he's in the exact same place, this place of testing, this place where it's painful, right? And Jeremiah was a prophet in an idolatrous Israel, right? In a, in, a, in a people full of compromise, right? And he's full of pain because of what he sees, right? And the only difference, I believe, between many Christians today and Jeremiah is that Jeremiah had the courage to see. And what he saw brought great pain to his heart. Right? If we will open our eyes, we will realize that we are also called to be prophetic voices in a culture that is worshiping idols rampantly. If we saw with the heart of God, we could not, we couldn't stop suffering. Right? If you saw the person you walk by at the grocery store, if you saw what God saw, your heart would hurt. Suffering is a part of this life. In this life, to love is to suffer because we're in a dying world. And Jeremiah had the courage to see. And because of what he saw, it broke him. He had suffering. And he wrote a book called Lamentations. That's when you know you see, right? Dang. I hope that's not my next one. The Lamentations of Jordan. <laughs> You know, you think humility sells bad. Just do lamentations. <laughs> I just want to read this chapter because I think it really shows the process that the prophet went on to find his heart. 
right, to find the admiration of the bridegroom, to find his yes to Jesus in the midst of it all. Right? Because we like cosmetic beauty as American culture. That is not the beauty of the kingdom. Right? The beauty of the kingdom is a diamond in the dirt that you have to scrape and claw and dig and process for. But then you find that diamond and, and it's, it's, it's more beautiful than everything you paid to get it. It's the treasure in the field. All right, you don't just find a treasure by walking through the field. You gotta get down on your hands and your knees and you gotta dig. Right? You gotta get real, you gotta get raw, you gotta dig into your own heart and actually express what's really happening in the midst of a vulnerable life we are all sojourning through. So listen to the raw expression of the prophet. I am the man who's seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He's driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he's turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He's caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He's broken my bones. He's besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he's made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He's walled me in so that I cannot go out. He's made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with hewn stone. He's made my paths crooked. He's to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He's turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as the target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I've become a laughing stock to my people. They're mocking song all the day. He's filled me with bitterness. He's made me drunk with wormwood. He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I've forgotten happiness. So I say my strength is perished and so is my hope from the Lord. Raw. God's not afraid of you, not afraid of your emotion. He's not afraid of what you really feel. All right, and in my life, and we'll see here in Jeremiah, the admiration doesn't come until you get honest with the pain, until you get honest with the questions, until you get honest with what you really feel, because God is present with your authentic self. He's not present with what you're supposed to be. He's not present with what you're supposed to pray. He's not present with what you're supposed to feel. He's present with you. And here it comes. Verse 21. Yet this I recall to my mind, and therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness will never cease. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. He admires Jesus. He admires his God, even in the midst of his own difficulty and pain, right? He found the beauty. That's where intimacy is forged and formed. Right? It's in David's life, too. You look at his psalms. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you rejected me? He's just real. He's honest. And then it somehow turns. But you're my rock. You're my refuge. You're my strength. You're my fortress. Right? We like to skip to like, I'm, I'm scared. I'm afraid. But you're my rock. You're my fortress. So why does it feel so stuck up here in my head? Because you're using David's words to try to be a band-aid for what your own soul's experiencing. And God doesn't want David's words, he wants them to be, and I'm not against praying the Psalms, I love the Psalms, let them inspire you. But he wants them to be you. Oh my dove, let me hear your voice. Let me see your form, express yourself to me. And I brought these tonight because I wanted to make a, an example. This is my history with God. 
hundreds of pages that are woven with tears and a fair share of profanity and anger and emotion and the heights of joy and the depths of loss and disappointment and the deep questions and the revelations and the beauty of what I found. My history with God, it's contained in these pages because I learned in my pain that as I processed, right, I tell people this all the time, you can't deal with what's going on inside of you until you get it outside of you because then you can step back and behold it and actually in some sense objectively engage with it, right? So many people, we stuff, we take paint, stuff, 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 and then just try to like get a scripture and kind of like, <laughs> then we're like leaking there, you know, and it's like, we're like Adam in the garden, putting leaves on, but it's like the scriptures, <laughs> you know, it doesn't work, it doesn't work, right? intimacy's forged in the depths, right, and what you find there is a joy that's greater than the suffering of life, is a peace that's unshakable, is, is a real Jesus that is bigger than all the vulnerability. And all the scary situations, like he's bigger, he's more abundant. You find him, you know him. Right? He shows you his glory in that steep place as you reveal yourself to him. So I want to, I want to close. I'm going to have you all stand. I want to read these words of Jesus one more time and then just pray. If you're on the prayer team, you can come forward now. I'm just going to kind of transition into a ministry space. We hear the Lord inviting you tonight into a new place. Not necessarily of his heart, but into your own. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet. And your form is lovely. Jesus, I thank you for your relentless pursuit of our hearts. God, that there are depths yet to be explored between you and I. And each one of us with you. And God, may this be a church that says yes to your invitation, that we will climb that mountain of myrrh with you, that we will not live afraid of pain, that we won't just try to distance ourselves from the reality of a dying world, but that we'll have the courage to open our hearts an unwavering vulnerability that follows you with a with a willingness to bleed and suffer for the sake of love. Because we know that there's no price that we can pay that even compares to the treasure of knowing you. God, like Paul, who suffered everything, the loss of everything, is that I count it nothing, count it rags, garbage, in the face of what I've found in you. Jesus, you're a man that we see dimly, but that's enough to give you everything. And I thank you, Jesus, that you descend into the valley of our brokenness. And even though we, our vision is impaired and we can only make you out as a fragment of who you really are. God, you woo us with loving kindness to take one step, one day at a time, ascending that mountain into your holiness. You're desiring just purity, God, the most pure 
intimacy that we can imagine. God, and it's not for the special. It's not for the super spiritual ones. God, it's not, it's not for any particular person. It's just for the person that says yes. God, and may we be a people that say yes. May we press into our own hearts and find the admiration, the adoration, the worship, the affection, the words, the creative expression that can convey to you the song of our heart. God, whether it's in song, whether it's in artistic expression, God, whether it's in dance, whether it's in journaling, whether it's in whatever form it may be, God, just release self-expression in this house. Spirit of wisdom, come and open our eyes and anoint us to be able to put words and expression and action to the things within our hearts, God, that we can get real with you. God, just break through the denial. Break through the walls, God, the things that we've created, God, the intellectual paradigms that keep us from just experiencing what this life really is. God, give us the courage to just be vulnerable, not just in moments, not just in these big acts, God, but day to day, moment to moment, just our hearts open, engaging with a world that's hard and scary to love. But we do it because you're drawing us there. So Jesus, I just thank you, God. I thank you, God, for your love. I thank you for your pursuit. I thank you that you took the cross, God, not so that we wouldn't have to, but so that when we said yes to it, it wouldn't be the end of the story. It wouldn't be a dark, painful, cold day. God, it'd just be day after day, a deeper sojourn into the depth of your suffering, but into the, re the height of your resurrection life. God, we want it all. We want all of you, God. We want more of you, God, and that's everything that you are. We don't just want the good parts of you. We don't just want the convenient parts of you. We don't just want to know you in your resurrection, God. We want to know you in the fellowship of your suffering. We want to know everything you are, Jesus. You are beautiful through and through. Every aspect of you, God, is completely attractive and is compelling. And we just say yes to all of you tonight. In Jesus' name. We're here to pray for you. If you're being stirred, if you're being ministered to, uh, you can come forward, and we'd love to just partner with you and speak into you in any way the Lord would see fit. Uh, be blessed, and we'll see you next week.